Thank you, Rob. A couple things. Uh, first of all, college students back for Thanksgiving. Welcome back. Glad to have you. And we'll see you probably soon for Christmas, too, so that'll be good. Uh, also, we are planning on uh, doing communion this morning. And so just so you prep that way and think about that, prepare your heart as we're heading towards that. The sermon will help as we steer towards that. Uh, we are still talking about Israel, and so if you have not heard this announcement, we have two possible scenarios, one next November, one in spring. Uh, if you are interested in that, tear out the preparation of your uh, bulletin and write your name or give us an email address or something, and we can get a hold of you, and which, which one you would prefer. And after this Sunday, we're going to start making some decisions, and we'll let you know where we're going with that. So... Uh, get it in today. That would be great. All right. Let's uh, pray. We're in our series of Mark. And uh, by the way, this will be the last one in Mark. We will take a break. Uh, we will start the Majesty to Manger series next Sunday as we head towards Christmas. And then uh, we will kick back up on the 29th. And uh, normally the 29th is the Sunday after um, Christmas and you know it's kind of a give or take kind of thing. I'd like to encourage you to be here. There'll be some a special thing happening, and you'll want to be here. That's all you're going to get from me. All right. So let's begin by reading this morning. We're in Mark chapter 12, and it reads like this. Then they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to him in order to trap him in a statement. They came and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and defer to no one. For you are not partial to any, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay a poll tax to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing the hypocrisy, said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a denarius to look at. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they were amazed at him. And some Sadducees, who say that there is no resurrection, came to Jesus and began to question him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. Well, there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife, and died leaving no children. The second one married her, died leaving behind no children. The third likewise. And so all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, when they rise again, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are mistaken, that you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning bush how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. So now we come to this third confrontation between Jesus and the religious leaders. We saw the first one was when they happened when he was cleansing the temple. The second one being the parable of the tenants that we talked about last week. And now these two confrontations. They are an interesting mix. If you look up who the Herodians 
and the Sadducees are, uh, normally they didn't get along at all. Right? They had no use for each other and couldn't hardly tolerate each other. But um, the Expositor's Bible Commentary points out that the Herodians always messed with the Pharisees on a political level. So they were kind of the political arm of that. And then the Sadducees always messed with the Pharisees on a theological level. And so they kind of spat and quarreled and argued between each other. But here they banded together in their opposition to Jesus. And in both of these scenes, Jesus proves himself to be more than an able match of intellectual wits with the minds of the lawyers, the scribes, and the Pharisees. The text clearly says they were trying to trap him. You ever been in that spot where somebody's trying to trap you in your words? Have you ever had someone come to you when they are asking you a question and it's not really the question they're asking and it's loaded and you can feel it? You don't know why? but you can just sense it's loaded and you need to be careful. That's what's going on here. Look at, look at this again. It says, And they sent to him some Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? I love how the Expositor's Bible Commentary puts it this way. It says, It was a thoroughly insincere, obvious, and indeed obnoxious piece of flattery. Isn't that great? That was really well worded. And with that, let's pray. All right? Father, that is well put. And... Uh, Lord, we don't want to be obnoxious this morning. We want to be heartfelt, sincere, true. As we look at this, help us, help us pick up points and just in terms of gratefulness and respect and the opposite of that. There's so many currents in these two passages here. Help us as we walk through it. And we seek you this morning as we come to communion, Lord, that you will consolidate our hearts together that our faith will be anchored on you and that we will come away having sent a deep sense of being with you and recommitted to you all at the same time. We ask this in your name. Amen. Okay, so this is a really tricky trap. And uh, to explain it, the issue had to do with a tax to the Romans. Again, uh, the Expositor's Bible Commentary gives us an insight into this piece of history. So do you remember back in Jesus' story, remember when he was born and then they left and fled to Egypt because Herod had tried to kill Jesus. And when Joseph and Mary came back, do you remember that when they came and they were heading towards Jerusalem, they heard that Archelaus was reigning in the place of his father Herod and they knew that he was a wicked guy. And so it says that instead they went to Nazareth. Right? Well, Archelaus was a wicked guy. He was disposed by Rome in 6 AD. So not long after he failed to reign, he was taken off the throne. And since that time then, the Jews were required by the Romans to pay what's called tribute money. And tribute money was money that went into what was called the fiscus. And the fiscus was simply um, read the emperors, okay, um, the Roman treasury. And so now they were pitching into the pot and this is 
basically a tax that Rome was uh, now assessing against the Jewish people. Some Jews, the group we would know as the Zealots, that name ring a bell for you, the Zealots, flatly refused to pay it because for them it was an admission that Rome had the right to rule. Uh, If you read the 12 disciples, Simon the Zealot, okay, so he's one of these dudes. All right, so you realize Jesus pulled together some amazingly diverse people into his group of disciples. Uh, The Pharisees didn't like paying it, but they didn't actively oppose it. The Herodians had no problem with it at all. And the Expositor's Bible Commentary says they set this trap up so that they could, in interesting words, impale Jesus upon the horns of this dilemma. Again, what they're hoping for is a split between him and the crowds. Remember, the crowds are massively on his side. They like him. They think he's true. They think he's right. They're calling out, this is the Messiah. This is the one. And so they're, the Pharisees and Sadducees and Herodians have to be extremely careful because one wrong slip and they go under the bus too. Right? So it's, it's a, a fascinating kind of mixture. So they're trying to find fault um, with him that they can trip him up in his words. So Jesus says this, but knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why do you put me to the test? Bring me a Daenerys and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. And they marveled at it. They were stunned. That's what it means. They were wordless. They went wow, what do we do with that, right? No comeback whatsoever. Jesus looks right through them, into them, and calls it for what it is. He saw their hypocrisy. Why are you testing me? Jesus knew a snake when he saw one, right? So he again does something that is absolutely brilliant. Uh, This is just, uh, sometimes we're so familiar with it, but he takes an object, a a denarius. A denarius was a coin that represented a day's wage for the average working man, all right? So if you worked a day, you would get a denarius, and that term shows up in the New Testament all over the place. He holds it in front of them and says, whose inscription and likeness is this? And they say Caesar's. And then he gives this brilliant answer, all right, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And it says they were amazed at him. The question I have this morning, why is that so astonishing? Here's why that's so astonishing. He never answers their question. Right? It's, we, we read that, we can miss it completely. He never answers their question. That's brilliant. What he does, he just states a principle and then he leaves it to their consciences to decide what is Caesar and what is God's. And they're like, so not only didn't they not get their, but now they're stuck with what do you determine is Caesar's and what do you determine is God's. And they realize they have no comeback to this and they've just been thoroughly diced rhetorically. Soundly defeated, they retreat. Okay, So not long after that, uh, the Sadducees take their shot. Pharisees, foolish Pharisees, we'll show you how this is done. right? So they walk up. Same kind of spirit, same kind of attitude. Sadducees came to him who say there is no resurrection. That's a very important point. 
And they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, a man must take the widow and raise it up for his brother. Now, Sadducees at that time tended to be a very small minority of wealthy, sophisticated, and upscale class rulers. Okay? They were the wealthy ones in the Jewish world. They were powerful and influential, but they were not well liked by the masses. So they're, they're running a risk here, right? Because they're not liked to start with, and if they do it wrong with Jesus, it, it could backfire on them pretty quickly. After the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, they disappear off the map. We never hear from them again. So their time is short. But in Jesus' day, they held clout and they had, they had swag. Right? And so people responded to them. They were also the literalists of Scripture. So they were the ones that took Scripture very seriously. And since thus they could not find evidence of the resurrection in the Old Testament, which I myself personally am mystified by, how they couldn't find resurrection in the Old Testament, but be that as it may, they, because they couldn't find evidence, in their opinion, they didn't think there was one. They used the pronoun teacher, but they are manifestly, manifestly hostile, right? This is not respectful. There, there is sarcasm and cynicism wrapped up into this use of the word teacher here. Uh, the Expositor's Bible Counter points out that the case offered uh, for his opinion is a ridiculous reduction ad absurdum. Isn't that awesome? Do you know what a reduction ad absurdum is? I didn't either, so I looked it up. All right? Here's what a reduction ad absurdum is. The meaning is it's a method of proving the falsity of a premise by showing that its logical consequence is absurd or contradictory. In other words, the outcome's so ridiculous it can't possibly be true. Okay? So what's the case? Well, let's look at it again. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife. When he died, he left no offspring. The second took her and died, leaving no offspring. The third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. And in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven all had her as a wife. The expositor Bible commentary says that this case is so ludicrous, it may have been a well-known Sadducee and joke used for poking fun at the Pharisees' doctrine of the resurrection. Right. So there, this is a very mocking kind of tone when you read this. So on one side of the coin, pun intended, Jesus gets hit with a tricky money political question. On the second side of the coin, he gets hit with a tricky marriage theological question. They didn't care who took him out. They just cared that they took him out. Okay? And Jesus rebukes them sharply. Here's what he says. He said, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry or are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. This had to be an embarrassing rebuke to them, especially in front of other people. And the question is why? Because they prided themselves on the knowledge of their word. Matter of fact, they weren't wishy-washy Pharisees who believed in oral tradition, dreams, angels, and the like of that stuff. Why, they were the word and only the word. They were the literalists. And so this was their point of pride. So for Jesus to say, you don't understand the scriptures or the power of God, had to be 
rebukingly embarrassing, right? Like shocking as a, uh, it, it had to sting, right? Matter of fact, Jesus is double rebuking them, not only on the issue of the word, but also on angels, which they said didn't exist. So in one statement, Jesus pegs them on the resurrection and angels and, and, and takes them out. He says, we become like angels, had to great and confuse at the same time because they didn't believe there were angels. Then Jesus uses this pregnant pause to go on to something far more important. He says this, As for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush how God spoke to him, that being Moses, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not a God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Have you not read the book of Moses? Touche. Right? I mean, name a Jew who did not know or read the five books of the Bible in that day. Right? They grew up with it. They were in synagogue with it. They re- they, many of them had it memorized. So for Jesus to say that, just like flick, right? Just zapped them. <clears throat> Jesus brilliantly takes them to one of the most core episodes in all of Jewish history. Moses and the burning bush. That story is still famous today. Okay? It carried incredible clout in that culture. And in this, he quotes the father being in the presence of that flame and fire in the burning bush and says, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. The patriarchs, their ancestors, their foundation, their anchors, right? They built their whole culture off of that. As a matter of fact, if you read in a number of places, I would just tell you, go look at John chapter 7 and 8. Their arguments to Jesus, they often used Abraham as the cornerstone foundational evidence and trump card for the superiority of their argument. So Jesus is using their trump card against them in this whole, whole deal. We are Abraham's children, was their claim. What Jew did not know of those three? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? They all knew about those three. What Jew did not call Abraham their father? Right? Father Abraham. There we go. (laughs) Have that song stuck in your head all day. Jesus uses his knowledge and he flips it on in front of the whole crowd. He pulls something so basic from the test that it's easily missed. Here's the thing he was saying. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive. God is saying, I'm the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob who are with me. Obviously where? At the resurrection. They are with me. He was not the God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus' final assessment was, you are quite wrong. NASB says, you are greatly mistaken. I like that better. Okay, You are really in error. You are way off, is the way we'd say it. Okay, So stunning was this revelation and Jesus' brilliant and deft handling of the argument that it put them in total inner turmoil and confusion. Now they're starting to argue among themselves. Well, why didn't you say this? Right? You ever see how that works? They bicker. Now, they should have repented of their arrogance. Right there, they should have known and gone, wow, we've gone 0 for 3. Maybe we're wrong. Did that ever enter into the conversation? No. 
They should have humbly asked Jesus to save them, but they didn't. Why? I want to suggest something that's really powerful this morning. They were swallowed by their agenda. Have you ever been swallowed by your agenda? That your agenda is the only thing that really matters. What you want and how you want to get there is the ultimate importance. And you don't care what gets in your way. You're going to figure a way around it, through it, over it, under it. It doesn't matter. You're going to get it. That's where they are in this. They didn't want to be saved by Jesus. They wanted to kill Jesus. And so it didn't matter how brilliant the answers were. They were interested in carrying out their agenda. You know, we can find fault with them, but I get this. I totally get this, personally. Unfortunately, for all the wrong reasons. I remember before I knew Christ. Okay? I grew up with a knowledge of Jesus. I did not know Jesus. And I remember back at that time, as I was writing this, I went, oh, I had to repent. I said, uh, I remember the Lord reaching out to me in many various ways. I remember it making sense at points. And I remember resisting, stalling, pushing back, thinking he was trying to somehow either rip me off or kill my fun or take something from me. And I had him pictured as the enemy. My agenda had to survive at all costs. And I, I also remember it all crashing down on me and realizing I had it all wrong and that I had him wrong. I had totally misunderstood him. I had misunderstood his heart towards me. I had misunderstood his motives. I thought he was the enemy. He was trying to rescue me. He was trying to be my friend. He was trying to warn me of the danger I was in. I didn't think I was in much danger. I thought I was having fun. Funny how that goes together, right? What am I talking about here? The Pharisees had uh, a particular problem that I think all of us can relate to and all of us have seen at one point or the other. Have you ever run into somebody who's in love with their questions? Right? They come, they talk to you, and they look very sincere. I have this question. And they'll roll the question out. Uh, nothing infuriates them more than if you actually answer the question. Because they're used to being so clever that nobody's ever been able to answer the question. And when you actually answer it, they aren't happy with that. Okay? They have this clever pet question. You give them the answer. Rather than being grateful, they get angry. Well, you would... Right? It has to do with the mindset of the person. Proverbs 29.9 says this. Lord brought this to my mind. When a wise man has a controversy with a foolish man, the foolish man either rages or laughs and there is no rest. Remember with Jesus, they tried to pass him off as a madman. He's crazy. He's crazy. He's, this is the talk of a lunatic. And then when they couldn't get that, oh, he's a demon. He's a devil. Yeah, he casts out demons. He casts out demons by bigger demons. And, and he's a madman. And we shouldn't listen to him. This is exactly what was going on. And that's why there was no peace 
when Jesus dialogued with them. I'm going to ask the guys to uh, pass out for serving this morning for communion if you'd begin to do that while we're here in the message. This sets us up for, for two lessons this morning that I think are important. Lesson number one is obvious from the first half of the uh, scripture passage we looked at, and that is give to God what is God's and give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Okay, now usually this is where the pastor pounds and thumps and does all that kind of stuff. Northview, I want you to know, uh, you have been a spectacular group of people. We just went through and we had church in the park. We had our 20th anniversary family meal together. We had our Move the Mountain campaign and our Move the Mountain campaign has gone over and above in terms of paying off the loan and being able to speed ahead. We've had the thank offering that we just are giving Everett Gospel Mission. And we have also uh, now um, doing step-by-step. Gracious, generous, sacrificial. I, I want to applaud you. Okay? And if you're not part of that, you're just missing out on the fun. Okay? Because when you give on that way, there's a gratefulness that comes from it that just is absolutely extraordinary. But apart from the brilliance of the reply, that's, a good, that's good advice even today. Give to God what is God's and give to Caesar what is Caesar. Most of us would never think of not paying our taxes. There's the occasional person who goes, I write in protest against the United States of America. I'm no longer going to pay my taxes because you're corrupt. Thank you, amen, underline, exclamation point. All right, you'll get away with that for about five minutes. Then there'll be a little knock at your door and Mr. IRS agent will show up and say, hello, are you so-and-so? Yes, I am. Uh, You've not paid your taxes. No, I haven't. I'm not going to pay them. Well, awesome. And then they garnish your wages and they sell your property and they do all this because that doesn't work very well, right? We wouldn't think of not paying our taxes because we know that's going to happen. Most of us have a very healthy fear of the IRS. Worst thing that can show up is audit, right? <laughs> right? Just, where's my lawyer? What do I do? Where's my tax person, right? We kind of think. But sometimes we're not quite that um, tight on God's. We will use God's for ourselves. And I would just tell you this morning, we know this. We don't have to beat each other up. Don't use God's money that you know is his money and only you know what that is because I don't know your money. All right? But you know, don't use his for you. That's just a really wise principle. Remember from last week, go back to the parable of the tenants. What we saw the mistake that they made was they wanted God's stuff for themselves. They were the renters or the, the stewards of the orchard, the vineyard. But they wanted to take it all for themselves and give nothing back to the actual, really, true owner. They were thinking of themselves and here as well as owners or landlords instead of stewards. What's the difference? I thought of a couple. Here's, owners have rights. Stewards have responsibilities. Owners command. Stewards serve. Owners tend to be proud. Stewards tend to be humble. Owners are their own authority. Stewards operate under authority. 
As we come to communion this morning, checkpoint number one, let's check our spirits and make sure that we are a people under, not against, the authority of the Lord Jesus. Do you operate under his authority? Or do you operate in opposition to his authority? It's a very clear point and a very clear takeaway from that passage. The second one is this. The resurrection is a really big deal. Really big deal. Jesus flatly refuted their claims that there was no resurrection. And he used scripture to counter their clever little tricky attack against it. And notice he comes out both barrels blazing. What's really going on here? Well, one of the ways to get out of trouble, if you know you're guilty, right? Not that any of us would have ever been, but somebody was. One of the ways you get out of trouble is to find some way to disqualify the authority. In this case, it was Jesus. Half the time, in our cases, it's God. But if we are going to be judged, what we want to do is find something that disqualifies them so they can't judge us. God, I find fault with you. Right? Um, Yes, I'm wrong. But so are you. And therefore, you do not have the right to judge me. You're disqualified. Very, Very similar on the level of when mom catches Johnny snitching cookies out of the cookie jar. What does mom say to Johnny? Young man, you are in big trouble. What did I tell you about snitching cookies out of the cookie jar? Well, you and dad were fighting last night. What's Johnny doing? Neutralizing the authority, right? He knows he's guilty. He knows he's going to get judged. But if he can neutralize the authority, maybe he will paralyze them so that they can't take any action. That's what the Pharisees and Sadducees were doing here. So what they're doing with the Mosaic Law, it was saying, look at how ridiculous this is. These seven brothers and this wife and all, obviously this can't be true. And Jesus came back with alarming clarity that refuted their silliness. What he was saying is this, there was, is a real resurrection and there will be a real judgment. And no amount of mental gymnastics is going to alter this fact. The way out of judgment is not to try to negate the judgment. The way out of judgment is to come under the authority of Jesus so that you are protected from the judgment. Only he has the power to erase the curse of sin from our lives. And as we come to communion this morning, we recognize that Jesus at the Last Supper, was talking about resurrection. Now, he was talking about his death, right? That was a big part of it. But the other part, if you read those passages and go over them, he was talking about his resurrection at the same time. The disciples at that time sort of kind of maybe had an inkling about the death part because he had said that several different times. They really didn't have a good handle on the resurrection part at all. That that became clear later. But Jesus was talking about the resurrection, actually his resurrection. And as the old creed says, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. 
So what I'm saying this morning is this, this morning, let's make sure we're not skeptics in our heart. Outwardly conform, but inwardly resistant. Let's, let's not be people who are opposing the authority of Jesus, but actually submit and come under the authority of Jesus. Let's acknowledge his authority and his right to judge us. Dad has a right to do that. And he's a good dad. We sang about it this morning. It was gorgeous. That's who we're talking about. He has a right to judge. And because of that, let's place ourselves firmly under his control. That's an act of your will. Jesus, it's not some emotions and sentimentality. It's about Jesus. I recognize you're the king. I recognize your authority. I place my life under your authority. I give up the rights. I transfer the rights of my life over to you and entrust you with the gift of this one and only life that I have. Now look at that through the lens of communion. Jesus takes a piece of bread and says, this bread is a symbol. It's a symbol of my body. This is what's about to happen to me. I'm going to be badly broken in front of you. And that brokenness and being nailed on a tree, that is going to be to cover and take the price tag of the sins of the world, yours, mine included. Eat this in memory of me. And of the cup he took it and said this. This is the shedding of my blood. This is the symbol of the shedding of my blood for the remission of your sins. Remission means the slate's wiped clean. And he said, I will not drink of this again until I come back. And so he was speaking of resurrection at the Last Supper. That is the great hope. That's what we are waiting for. That's what we're looking for. Jesus says, don't take your eyes off of that. The resurrection is a big deal. All choices in life line up under that, not in opposition to that. Jesus said, drink this in memory of me. And ask the worship team to come up and close us out in worship. Would you join me in prayer? Father, I don't know who you spoke to. I don't know how you spoke to them, but I pray that you have spoken and I pray that people in their hearts have been dialoguing with you, thinking along, wrestling in their thoughts, knowing their life, knowing their turf, knowing where they're with you, knowing where there's gaps, knowing where they've stalled, knowing where they're dragging their feet, knowing where they're eager. And you probably always, like with me, I would assume you point out one or two of those things that are action points off of this morning. Lord, what things are yours and what things are Caesar's? Your Spirit can clarify that for us. And then, Lord, the resurrection, the point you were making, is a really, really big deal. May we make it a big deal as well. Help us to anchor on that and the hope that you talk about. Lord, when it says when you come back, will you find any faith? We hope you find a lot of faith. We hope we will be a people of faith to the very end 
here at Northview that will anchor with you and trust you and your resurrection and your return. And we give that to you in your name. Amen. As you're able and that you stand with us.